A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on the first At the Movies of 2022. We get to judge Will Smith's unorthodox approach to tennis coaching. Keep that stance open. You plant that right foot. What are you doing, Richard? That That's how you get a little closer. Richard, what are you doing? I'm talking to my daughter. Something wrong with that? A carnival grifter pushes his luck too far. You barely know me. Oh, I know you well. I know... You're no good. A post-apocalyptic drifter gets a shot at unimaginable wealth. What am I staring at the gold? You know where to get the excavator. And an unhappy princess gets to spend Christmas with the in-laws. What the hell are you doing here, Diana? Sorry, I mean you. Your Royal Highness. I'm lost. no idea of what men are capable of. We can't see it. But we're all trapped inside these strange repeating loops. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Oh, you are Gucci. You need to dress the part. It's chic. Go away! Don't you miss the music? You just need to play again. No, I can't. I haven't even heard one of my songs in over 15 years. Maybe it's the apocalypse. I'm putting together a team. You're the best in the world at what you do. This isn't funny, Amber. Would you like to play a game, Tara? So that's more or less what you missed since my last program just before Christmas. The King's Man is a slightly less revolting prequel to the utterly revolting Kingsman franchise in which Britain's brand new Secret Service tries to stop Rasputin and other historic figures from starting World War I. Keanu Reeves returns as Neo in the first Matrix movie for 18 years, The Matrix Resurrection. The star of the show is middle-aged Carrie Ann Moss as Trinity, getting to show more range than the film deserved. Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand play the Macbeths in Joel Cohen's expressionistic version of Shakespeare's tragedy. Beautifully shot and spoken, but without the momentum, the propulsion that the story really needs. Sometimes felt like it was just drifting in its own black and white beauty. The murder of an Italian tycoon is the centrepiece of Ridley Scott's House of Gucci. Wildly uneven, but still lots of fun. Animated, candy-coloured, singing pop star animals try and bring one of their heroes out of retirement in Sing 2. Some Ghostbuster grandchildren discover their heritage in the long-awaited Ghostbusters afterlife. 
Jessica Chastain puts together an all-female team of spies for the 355, a sad and pointless misfire that brings nobody any credit. And Scream is rebooted or remade, depending on your point of view. Sadly, that means we've got one prequel, four sequels, one remake, if you count yet another version of Macbeth, and only one original. And by my calculations, about 35% of all the box office revenue over the last few weeks went to Spider-Man No Way Home. Where I grew up, Louisiana, City Grove, tennis was not a game people's played. We was too busy running from the clan. But here it is, when I'm interested in a thing, I learn it. How it works, how the best peoples in the world do it. And that's what I did with tennis, with the girls. Somebody who won't be very far away from a proper discussion of an award at the Oscars will be Will Smith, who delivers a tremendous performance at the heart of King Richard, a crowd pleaser about the father, you might say the inventor, of the tennis champion Williams sisters Venus and Serena. Richard Williams is a remarkable individual, a proud and driven man, determined to make his children great at whatever cost. I first heard about him when I started reading about the Williams sisters and their phenomenal talent, and to be honest, he was seen as a bit of a joke by the tennis establishment. Or worse, he was that stereotype of a pushy sports parent, so set on living his dreams through his kids that he didn't care how they felt about it. Well, we all know that there are parents like that out there, but Richard Williams was not one. He was a pain in the butt, I'll give you that, but he never stopped seeing the wholeness of his kids. Junior, Junior, Junior. Uh, oh, uh, one second. You just got a little closed up that time. You're doing real good. You just got to keep that stance open. You plant that right foot. What are you doing, Richard? Through. That's how you get a little closed Richard, up. Richard, what are you doing? I'm talking to my daughter. Something wrong with that? No, nothing wrong with that. Except you want me to fix her stance, and I can't do that if you keep telling her to hit open. Well, Paul, ain't no reason to fix something that's not broke, okay? You've been hollering at the girl all day long to get back to the middle, get back to the middle. That's all I hear you saying. Yet you instructed her to close her stance. That's right. How's she supposed to get back to the middle with her stance all closed up, okay? If she stay open, she can plant that foot, more power, more speed. No, that's how she gets back to the middle. No, that is not how you get power. You want power in your stroke. You square your shoulders, you close your stance, hold your head right at contact and blast through it. You do not hit open stance, okay? Yep. Can we please get back to it? Wait, just keep your mind open, Paul, you know, just in case you're not the smartest Richard, person it would be in really the whole helpful. world. As the film begins, we see Williams and his two daughters travelling after school in their busted-up combi van from public courts to public courts, bashing balls around. He's doing the driving in more ways than one. They're a lower middle class family and Venus and Serena are products of a dream that Richard had before they were even born. He was determined that tennis was going to be their passage out and he was certain that he could make it so. He's a hustler, talking his way into tennis clubs to try and score a free membership so his kids will have better courts and better equipment or better coaches, even though he'll argue the toss with every single one of them. Tennis in Los Angeles in the 90s was not the people's game. It was a country club world, cocktails and business deals, social climbing. And the established pathways for young tennis talent did not usually involve being black and from Compton. Eventually, the hard work and the leaflets and the video brochures pay off 
And coach Paul Cohen, seen in the film coaching Pete Sampras and John McEnroe when Richard interrupts them, agrees to free coaching. But only for one of them. Venus will get all the professional attention and Serena will have to fend for herself on the back courts. Eventually, they find their way to Florida, with Richard continuing to call all the shots. Now, this here is our standard agreement. I'm sorry, you're... You know, you take these girls, uh, you take us all, the whole family. I'm sorry, you... You all want to come to Florida? Not Tundi. She just graduated valedictorian. So, her life is here. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Yeah, but all that other stuff is in that contract. We need that. Uh, we need a house. We need the best school and uh, a job for me on your staff. It says here a, 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 a mobile home? Yeah, I mean, we got to get there, don't we? <laughs> you believe in these kids or what? I'm not much of a tennis fan normally, but I can tell you there's just enough for you to know that it's very well done, but not so much that it becomes boring. There's a final climactic match between Venus and Arancha Sanchez-Vicario that manages to include all the classical sports movie beats, but at the same time leaves you guessing right to the end how it's going to play out. It's extremely satisfying. While Will Smith is the centrepiece of the picture, and he really is brilliant, his usual screen charm given a few more rough edges than usual, everyone else is very good too. The rapport that the rest of the family has with each other is a joy. Ingenue Ellis as Richard's now ex-wife Brandy, Sonia Sidney as Venus, and Demi Singleton as Serena. Well, the camera just eats them all up. There's also great work from reliable supporting actor John Bernthal as their second coach, Rich Mackey. King Richard is written by first-time screenwriter Zach Balin and directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green, two names I hope we hear more from. In fact, Balin has already written the new Creed film, Creed 3, and Green is directing all six episodes of the new series from David Simon and Ed Burns, We Own This City. This news makes me very happy. No, uh, oh, I meant to tell you, uh, we're not playing no more juniors. Yeah, they'll they they play matches again when they turn pro. Okay. And when exactly is that going to be, Richard? When I say they're ready. We're not going to rush this, Rick. Everything going good. We're not going to start rushing now. What are they going to do, Richard? What, they going to play ping pong? No, no, they're going to practice with you. They're going to go to school. They're going to go to the hall. And pretty much they're going to be kids. That's what I want. They're going to be, be, be kids, but... Richard, that's, that, that is not how it works. I, I, I can't do that. I can't motor like that. King Richard is rated M for violence and offensive language, and even though it has been out for a couple of weeks, you'll still find it at many cinemas around the country now. I'll tell you what, you got a safe? I do. You should keep this for me. I don't want Ma to know about it anyway. Why don't you keep it for a few days? If you change your mind... We'll split a 50-50. And if not, I'll keep it. You barely know me. Oh, I know you well. I know you're no good. You might have heard the word noir bandied around a bit in recent times. 
There's neo-noir, Scandi-noir, obviously, which describes those grim crime stories set near the Arctic Circle. New Zealand crime fiction is known as year-noir, for obvious reasons. But the granddaddy of all the noir is the original, simple film noir. Coming out of the Hollywood B-movie system in the 40s and 50s, cheap black-and-white crime stories, often shot on location, usually at night with that high-contrast cinematography, you know, with all the shadows. Many of the directors were European émigrés who had experience of expressionist visuals, Dutch angles, that sort of thing. Fritz Lang, von Sternberg, Schodmack, Tourneur. There are lots of disagreements about what actually makes a noir film a noir, but one of the common elements seems to be the weak leading man persuaded to do bad things by a femme fatale. Think Fred McMurray in Double Indemnity, seduced by the scheming Barbara Stanwyck. People still come back to that kind of story often, but not with the kind of loyalty that Guillermo del Toro brings to Nightmare Alley, a first-rate classic noir, if ever there was one. Please concentrate on this object I have in my hand, Professor. What can you tell me? Wristwatch. Leather band. Brass, not gold. Uh, Old, worn down. But it's full of meaning. It wasn't yours originally, was it? You took it, you stole it, didn't you? Based on both William Lindsay Gresham's 1946 novel and the first screen adaptation from 1947, which starred Tyrone Power, Nightmare Alley amplifies the nightmare part, using del Toro's capacity for horror imagery to reveal the human horror within. As he said in recent interviews, the monster is always us. Bradley Cooper plays Stan Carlyle, a drifter with a tragic past who one rainy night stumbles across a seedy travelling carnival where he gets a job and a bed for the night. Finding his family, you might say, he befriends the various carnies, showmen, freaks and geeks. Well, maybe he doesn't befriend the geek, although not for want of trying. The geek is a human male usually addicted to alcohol and morphine who, after months of abuse, is reduced to eating live chickens for the amusement of paying customers. Is he a man or an animal? cries Willem Dafoe. Carlyle also becomes close to the great Xena, Tony Collette, and her sozzled husband Pete, played by David Strathairn. Pete used to be one of the great mentalists, a mind-reading act, before the drink got the better of him. And he was a decent man. He'd always tell the audience that his show was a trick before sending them on their way. Stan Carlyle, it seems, does not have the same scruples. Mary Margaret Cahill, don't forget to smile, he said. I don't really like to smile, but I'd sure as hell smile for him. He could charm his way out of anything. He's a man after my own heart. Tell me more. About him? Sure, about you. What about me? I know that uh, you like chocolates. And you like to read. And dancing. (laughs) When's the last time you did it? (laughs) A while. Yeah. We're going to fix that. 
Carlyle is now the great Stanton, which isn't that far off, the great Satan, and making a small fortune reading the minds of rich rubes in New York society with the help of poor, decent, honest Molly, played by Rooney Mara, who he rescued from the carnival. It's a smooth psychologist, Kate Blanchett's Lilith Ritter. She spots his potential, and between them they cook up a plan to do one-on-one spook shows where, thanks to the fact that she knows all the town's dirty little secrets, he can really blow people's minds. The way that noirs always tend to work, it doesn't go according to plan. At least not his plan. Cooper is terrific, always good to see him stretched. The production designed by Tamara Deverell is a revelation, and her attention to detail is only matched by Louis Sequeira's pitch-perfect costume design. My only beef about the craft is uh, perhaps the shiny colour photography from Dan Laustson. In the States at the moment, lots of people are going out to see a special black-and-white version of Nightmare Alley, and I think that would be awesome, frankly. I should point out that Unlike traditional noir, where the worst of the violence is suggested rather than shown, Del Toro once again cannot help himself and stoops to some really gut-wrenching gore. It's his happy place, I know, but that sort of thing really doesn't do it for me. Mr. Carlyle, come in. Slow day. Have you not heard? We're at war. I'm aware. How did you know it was me? What brings you here? You left me your card, didn't you? So, here we are. Oh, not me. I never drink. Microphones. That's right. Wire recorder. You recording this? No. My office is wired to record all analysis sessions. You got a smoother line, but you run a racket. Same as me. Is that what this is? Nightmare Alley is rated R13 for graphic violence, cruelty, offensive language, and content that may disturb. And if you look really close in one shot, there's even a little bit of nudity. It's playing across New Zealand now. One final thought. There was something like 30 people in the COVID safety department working on that film. A veritable sign of the times. Came from the West, right? Well, they're about to. Here it's getting pretty bad out that way now. It's not good. Folks turning on each other. Yeah. Seeing that mass exodus down south here, that ain't gonna end well. I don't follow it that close. Pretty soon, there'll be hordes of people coming out this way. What happened to your face? Bradley Cooper is a smooth drifter with a talent for reading people in Nightmare Alley. Zac Efron in Gold is the complete opposite. Whenever he finds any water in the post-apocalyptic desert landscape he finds himself in, he tries to clean himself up, but it does no good. So he can't scrub up that matinee idol face, and nor is he much good at identifying the difference between friend and foe. I say post-apocalyptic, but it appears to be only post-apocalyptic for some people. 
On a car radio, we hear very happy-sounding news reports about the rise in value of cryptocurrency. So obviously some people have done well out of whatever it is that has scarred this land. Efron has been promised passage across the desert to somewhere called the Compound, where he believes he can make a new start. His driver, played by Anthony Hayes, who is also the film's director, is sceptical but takes on the gig anyway. The location of the landscape is unspecified. Signs are in multiple languages, but its barrenness is portrayed with gusto by the South Australian outback. On a call of nature stop, Efron's character sees something glinting in the sun, poking up out of the sand. Turns out to be the biggest gold nugget you have ever seen in your life. A quick flame test confirms it is the real deal. And for these two desperate men, it is their escape. If only they can get it on the truck. You have to be careful asking around. If people get windy and need an excavator, they're likely to want to know why. But I'll give you the name of someone I trust. And I'll stay here with the gold. What am I staying here with the gold? You know where to get the excavator. The driver is persuaded to let Efron's character stay behind and mine the treasure. He'll be five days, maybe six, seven tops. Here's some water, a few cans of food, and for the purposes of propelling the plot along a bit, a satellite phone. It's the kind of environment where the scorpions and snakes could either be friend or foe, and the unremitting heat and sand start to play tricks on his mind. The film reminded me of another recent One Man Against the Elements film, Mads Mikkelsen in Arctic. There, he also stumbles across a wrecked plane and tries to turn it into shelter. He also attempts to be a resourceful survivalist, but is thwarted at every turn. Another film I was reminded of was John Huston's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, if only because they're both about how gold and the pursuit of it can drive you insane and turn you against your best interests. Maybe that's the allegory we have going on here. The rich get richer because they don't care who they destroy. Ephron not unsuccessfully channeling a young Christian Bale, or perhaps more accurately a current Daniel Radcliffe, is perfectly fine, but he gets a massive helping hand from the makeup department. Jennifer Lamphy is credited. He really does look a mess by the end. The film really needed a satisfying ending, and it sort of got one, but by golly it's bleak. So you're out here on your own? I was. Why here? It's as good a place as any. Well, that's a load of bollocks. It's about five kilometers that way. Well, there's actually a water hole. More shelter. I like it just fine here. Like Nightmare Alley, Gold is rated R13 for violence, offensive language and content that may disturb. It's a well-made film, but in the current environment, you'd be forgiven if you chose something a little bit lighter. What the hell are you doing here, Diana? Sorry, I mean, you, your Royal Highness. I'm lost. But if it's you, I must be close. 
Yes. Yeah, the house is just there, but why are you driving yourself? No, oh, cars don't drive on their own. No. Where's your driver? Where's your security detail? I don't know. I was at the cafe in Kensington giving some presents and I thought I might just drive. Despite being one of the most famous people who has ever walked the planet, the mystery of Princess Diana continues to captivate biographers and filmmakers. By my count, there are now eight fictionalised screen portrayals of the late Princess of Wales, six of which were made after she passed away in 1997. Some of those are TV movies that the phrase tawdry cash-in might have been invented for. But more recently, her screen portrayals have been sympathetic, even if they're no less fanciful. In 2013, Naomi Watts played Diana during the last two years of her life as she attempted to rebuild it using her star power for charitable purposes. And Peter Morgan's long-running biography of the 20th century royal family, The Crown, Diana played by Emma Corris, is pretty much the only character that comes out with their reputation enhanced. And the less said about Diana the Musical, on Netflix now, folks, the better. And now we have Spencer. Another imagining of the interior life of the princess, the dots drawn from public statements made by her and others, and the lines between them being sketched pretty roughly by screenwriter Stephen Knight and then smoothed over by the excellent Chilean director Pablo Larraín. Diana in this film is the prodigiously gifted and underappreciated American movie star Kristen Stewart, who demonstrates considerable technical prowess in impersonating what we remember of Diana and at the same time portraying the considerable psychological baggage that the script demands. In the film, we are present at a fictionalised royal family Christmas gathering at Sandringham in the late 1980s. The marriage between Diana and Prince Charles is on the rocks, but not yet officially over, and the pressures to conform to the family mythology are clearly beginning to get to her. Over the weekend, there is passive-aggressive conflict everywhere. At one point, Diana wakes up to find that her curtains have been sewn shut to prevent the unseen paparazzi from using their long lenses to see into her bedroom. Her favourite dresser, played by Sally Hawkins, is sent back to London for not forcing Diana to wear the correct outfit for every occasion. She had to change several times a day, apparently. It's only when she is with her boys, William and Harry, that she really perks up, but even these moments seem designed to score screenwriting points rather than truly illuminate anyone's character. Mummy, why do we have to open our presents on Christmas Eve? Why not Christmas Day like everybody else? You know, at school you do tenses. Yeah. yeah. It's the past, the present, the future. Right. Well, here... Yeah. There is only one tense. There is no future. Past and the present are the same thing. There's one sequence in Spencer that, depending on your point of view, is either the most marvellous piece of pure cinema in ages or complete baloney. It's a dance montage featuring Diana in some of her most famous outfits and it owes a great deal to the generosity of the Chanel Museum in Paris who also provided outfits for Lorraine's last film about a famous woman's tragedy, Jackie, in 2016. Despite the classy direction and Stuart's excellence, I have two main beefs with Spencer. 
One is the ick factor about portraying real people who by the nature of their existence are unable to talk back. The kids must be heartily sick of this aspect of their lives being raked over yet again. And that leads me to the banal pop psychology of the screenplay. Diana in the film is just a collection of neuroses and trauma, a bundle of pathologies, including depression, an eating disorder and self-harm. The stale metaphor of the pheasants is just one example. It's painfully shallow, and I wonder if the next time someone wants to make a film about Diana, they shouldn't get a woman to write it. We might get a little bit more insight then. What happens to the pheasants? What happens to the pheasants that my son will be shooting? After the shoot, we'll dress them and we'll pluck them and everyone will take a brace home with them. There'll be lots left over. The staff will get some, the dogs get some and the rest is thrown away. Thrown away? Well, pheasants are bred to be shot, ma'am. If it wasn't for the gun, they wouldn't be there. And the ones that don't get shot, they just get run over. They're not the brightest of birds. Beautiful, but not very bright. Spencer is rated M for offensive language and self-harm references, and it is playing on select screens across the country now. And that's our programme. There was quite a lot of lovely film music to choose from this week. Nathan Johnson's score for Nightmare Alley was tremendous, if a little bit predictable. But in the end, I've chosen this track called Arrival from Spencer uh, by Johnny Greenwood. The music really is an additional character throughout, sometimes jazzy and improvisational, and sometimes pseudo-classical. Greenwood has had a good summer with his score for The Power of the Dog uh, as another triumph. This week's edition of At The Movies was produced, written and edited by me, Dan Slevin. I'll be back at the same time next week, and I hope you'll be able to join me then. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.